Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to begin the sermon this evening by saying that it's easy in some ways for us to read this story from a distance. There are actions taken by Jacob's sons in this story that may seem foolish to us. They are overconfident, for example, when they assert that there is no cup, no silver cup in any of their bags. And we might say, from our safe distance, sitting in a church pew, what were they thinking? What were they thinking, being so brash, so overconfident? Well, then again, we have the advantage that they didn't have of knowing what was going on behind the scenes, and we also have the advantage of knowing how the story ends. But for Judah and his brothers, this was a real and almost unbelievable experience They had no idea who this mysterious ruler was who stood before them in all the glory of Egypt. They had no reason to suspect that, in fact, this man was setting them up. The man himself relieved them of that very fear by inviting them into his house and feasting them and assuring them that he was not going to require anything from them for the the money that had appeared in their sacks. So the fear and confusion and indignation they felt when they were accused standing there in the dusty roads of Egypt, was very real, as well as the guilt that continued to haunt them from their distant past. So it's easy for us to read this story from a distance, even though it was very real for them. On the other hand, one of the reasons why I personally find this story so beautiful, so powerful, is exactly because it is so true to life. Here in this story are real believers in living color dealing with real issues that we can all recognize, can't we? The Belgian Confession says that we receive the authority of the Bible because the Holy Ghost witnesses in our hearts that it is from God whereof it carries the evidence in itself. That's Article 5. The Word of God speaks directly to our lived experience. It does not sugarcoat, but addresses the painful realities of guilt, of alienation, and of dysfunction. And against the backdrop of those painful realities, against the backdrop of the curse and its effects, the Word of God sets before us the beauty of redemption and reconciliation. And not in a way that is far off in distance, but in a way that is true to life. In a way that is true to our own pains, our own fears, our own sorrows, our own loves. And we see it all so wonderfully in this climactic episode in the story of Judah. The fact that there is no explicit typology in this story in some ways only makes it more compelling. Judah does foreshadow Christ in his actions here in a way, but what he really stands for is the regular, ordinary believer. Judah is the man who has seen and known the love of God, the God who laid down his life to redeem a sinner like Judah, so that now Judah can do nothing else but lay down his own life in love for his brother. That's the theme for the sermon this evening. Judah lays down his life for his brother. First, we will see that in doing so, he was in fact passing a test a test that had been set up for him by Joseph, unbeknownst to Judah, but also a test 
that God was sending Judah through, as well as his other brothers. Secondly, that by laying down his life for his brother, Judah was keeping a promise that he made to Jacob. And then finally, that through this action, God saved the family of Judah and the family of Jacob. So Judah lays down his life for his brother, first passing the test, second keeping the promise, finally saving his family. Now Judah did not know it, but he was being put to the test. He was being tested along with his other brothers from the very moment that he first arrived in Egypt and Joseph set his eyes upon him. The binding of Simeon, the demand that they not return unless Benjamin is with them, the feast with all of its strange and mysterious coincidences. Think about that. How did this ruler of Egypt know to set the table so that the oldest was sitting there and the youngest was sitting there? Why did he pile Benjamin's plate with five times as much food as the rest of them? Strange, mysterious coincidences to them. But all the while, Joseph was watching them, watching them, testing them. And now Joseph's noose was tightening. The brothers, no doubt, had smiles on their faces as they began their journey back to Canaan. By every measure, their journey had been a resounding success. Their sacks were full of grain. Simeon had been released from bondage. Benjamin was with them and unharmed. And they had just enjoyed the feast of their lives in the palace of the second most powerful man in the world. They were at ease and they were comfortable as they were making their way back north to the land of Canaan and to their father. They had no idea that unwittingly they had taken on some extra cargo in one of their sacks. And therefore, they were caught off guard and immediately on the defensive when the man's steward came running after them and accused them, why have you rewarded evil for good? Is not this from which my Lord drinks and divines? Referring to the silver cup as if they knew what he was referring to, even though they had no idea that that silver cup had been stowed away in one of their sacks. Well, the accusation was ridiculous in their minds. How could any of them have done something so outrageous as to take the cup off of the table of the very man who had hosted them, in whose power they had been? They were certain. They were so certain that they became brash and foolhardy in their response, and they said something that they would soon regret. Whoever has this vessel in his possession, let him die. And as for the rest of us, we will be the slaves of your master. Well, let it be so as you say, the steward replies, except don't worry about it. Only the man in whose possession the cup is found, he will be the slave. The rest of you will be blameless. All right, then the brothers reply, go ahead, search our bags. And very quickly, they take the bags down and they open up the sack's mouths. But Joseph's careful planning with the hand of God working through it all could not have been executed more perfectly so that now they fell right into his hand. 
And all of their boldness and brashness in asserting that they were blameless was quickly turned into sorrow and cries. And they ripped their clothes down the center in fear and confusion. And now with their tails between their legs, they go back south, back to Egypt, back to the palace of this powerful man of Egypt. And now the stern face of that Egyptian lord is glaring down at them with outrage in his eyes. What have you done? What kind of fool do you take me for that you would steal the cup right off of my table? Did you not think that I would figure it out? Did you not think that I would come looking? Now long before this time, Joseph had dreamed that all of his brothers would bow before him. Remember that? All of their sheaves would bow before his sheaf. All of the stars of heaven and the sun and the moon would bow before his star. You wonder if Joseph ever imagined that it would be like this. His brothers prostrate on the ground, trembling with fear. Naturally, the spotlight of the story must fall on Judah at this point. Did you notice that as we read? Up until verse 14, we read of all of these events as they unfolded with all of the brothers being the protagonists, as it were. But then in verse 14, the name Judah is singled out. Having rent their clothes, laded their asses again, and returned to the city, verse 14 says, And Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house. So it was not just the brothers who came to Joseph's house, but it was Judah and his brothers. And now it will be Judah who will open his mouth to speak. Judah was a man who was gifted with words. We have seen this already on more than one occasion. He was a natural-born leader. He was a man who knew how to speak in order to convince his brothers of his point of view. Judah is the one who persuaded his brothers to make some money off of Joseph rather than to kill him outright, for example. Judah is the man who convinced Tamar to remain as a widow in her father's house and to wait for a husband that Judah had no intention of giving to her. Judah is the brother who so recently convinced his father to place Benjamin into his care. I will be surety for him, he said. Of my hand shalt thou require of him, him of me, and if I bring him not back... I will bear the blame forever. Judah had a gift with words. He was a natural-born leader. But did he mean what he said? Back in Canaan, he said those words to Jacob because Jacob must relent. He must relent or they will all starve. There was urgency. But now Jacob is miles and miles away. And Judah's caught in a bind that was totally unpredictable and totally unforeseen. Judah could, perhaps, make the argument that there was nothing he could do. Nothing he could do to help Benjamin in this circumstance. He could wash his hands of the situation. He could walk away. It was not Judah, after all, who put the sack in Benjamin's mouth. Put the cup in Benjamin's sack, rather. 
Perhaps there was even an opportunity here. Perhaps this was a way to dispose of yet another of Jacob's favorite sons. And perhaps this was a way to punish his father once more for the favoritism that he had shown to the children of Rachel and to punish his father for his neglect of the sons of Leah and the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Judah could go home a free man with bags full of grain and silver and no blame attached to him by this Egyptian ruler. His father may die of grief and despair, but Jacob was getting on in years anyway, wasn't he? If you think evil reasoning like that is a stretch for Judah, remember that this is the very man, the very person, who sold his brother into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Remember that this is the very man who left his father's house for a while to live as a child of this world among the Canaanites. Remember that this is the very man who impregnated his own daughter-in-law because he thought that she was a prostitute. Joseph did not think it a stretch that that Judah might have thoughts such as these which is exactly why Joseph had arranged this situation in this way to put Judah in exactly this position and to see what he would do. Not just what he would say now, but what he would do. It was a test. Was he the same person that he had been all those years ago? Or had he changed? And this was all necessary if there was ever going to be reconciliation in this family. Joseph had to know. He had to know if his brothers were changed men. Joseph remembered looking into those very eyes of Judah as he cried out in anguish and distress as a 17-year-old boy, don't do this, my brother. Don't sell me into slavery. Let me go home. Let me return to my father. And Judah had hardened his heart and had counted off the pieces of silver one by one and smiled as they jangled in his pocket. Joseph had to know it had to be tested out. Does Judah understand what he did? Is he sorry? And don't think poorly of Joseph for making this test as if he was doing these things out of a spirit of revenge. Not at all. Joseph knew He knew from the moment that he laid eyes upon Judah and his other brothers that the hand of God was working in these things. Joseph had retained his integrity for all of these years as a man of faith, a man who believed in the God of the covenant. He was not really a man of divination. He was not really a man of sorcery as he presented himself to be. That was all part of the test to make his brothers believe that he was this Egyptian ruler. He had to present himself that way because it was the only way that he could find out without overawing his brothers. Had God been working in their hearts? Was God opening the way to reconciliation? To a reunited brotherhood and the joy of family? Joseph did what he did here as a man of God, as a man of faith in the God who forgives and who redeems sinners. Had Judah changed? Had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, had they changed? 
That's always necessary when sin comes to spoil and to break apart relationships. Repentance is a matter of the heart. We understand that. But repentance reveals itself always in tangible ways. In ways that can be tried and tested. That's why John the Baptist called the people to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. In Matthew 3, verse 8. In other words, don't just give me your words. Don't just give me your promises. Don't just give me your confessions. Let there be a complete turning about in your life. A complete turning about in your life that can be observed. They can be tested. And beloved, that's why it may not be done. The elders may not do it, and you may not do it in your own personal life. When there is gross disruptive sin, you may not forgive at the drop of a hat. You may not treat sin as if it is nothing. As if it is no big deal. Easily dropped easily forgotten about. Not so. That's not the Christian way. It may be the American way or the human way, but it's not the Christian way. Christ does not forgive those who hold on to their sins. Christ does not forgive those who explain away their sins who justify their sins, who continue in their sins. What Christ does is He calls His church to bind such people in judgment through the key of discipline. And He declares to them the words of 1 Corinthians 6, Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. It must be tested out, beloved. Repentance. It must be shown to be genuine, sincere. And make no mistake, God will find out the iniquity of his servants and he will purge them of it. He will bend heaven and earth to make it happen. He will send famines and troubles, ups and downs. He will send a godly Joseph. He will send a faithful elder or pastor. He will send a spouse, a son, a true Christian friend. Is it true? They will ask. Are you a changed person? Are you living a converted life? Are you seeking the goodness of God? Are you fleeing from sin? Is it true? Or is it just a mask? Is it just an elaborately constructed facade designed to deceive others and to deceive yourself that you are the ingenuine article when in fact you are a hypocrite and living as a hypocrite. The sons and daughters of God will be revealed through testing, beloved, through trials, through fire. And so Judah was tested. He was tested. Rightly, he was tested. And beautifully, wonderfully, it was shown that Judah was the genuine article. When Judah opened his mouth for the first time, 
in verse 16, he made what would have sounded like a stunning confession to Joseph's ears. And Judah said, that's chapter 44, verse 16, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. That was a stunning confession for Joseph to hear. Did he not clear them of blame? Did he not say, no, you are all blameless. It's the man who has the cup who will be blamed. It's the man who has the cup who is guilty. But you see, Judah is not confessing guilt for taking the cup. He's confessing guilt for something that took place 20 years or so before this time. He's confessing guilt for something that, as far as Judah was aware, the man in front of him knew nothing about. We are all guilty, he says. Why are we guilty? Not for stealing your cup. We're guilty for our sin of selling our other brother. It was on account of that sin that we committed in cold blood years ago that all of these circumstances have been so arranged that now this, our younger brother, is implicated and caught in this web. It's not his fault. It's our fault. We, we brothers, we must be your slaves now. That was a stunning confession. And it was a step in the right direction. But there was something else Joseph needed to know. Not just, are you sorry? That's what Judah says. We're sorry. He admitted his guilt. But also this, would you do it again? Would you do it again? And so he presses the matter. Verse 17 of chapter 44. God forbid that I should do so, but the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, get up, get you up in peace unto your father. And he could have. Judah could have. He could have stood up. Right then and there, brushed the dust off of his knees, and he could have gone home, leaving Benjamin behind in chains. But that's not the promise Judah made. And now we see truly what is in the heart of Judah as he opens his mouth one more time. Verse 18. It might sound like he's accusing the man in front of him, but he's not. He's just explaining the terrible dilemma that they have found themselves in. Oh, my Lord. You said to us that we cannot see your face again unless we bring the young lad down with us. Verse 23, Thou saidst unto thy servants, Except your youngest brother come down with you, he shall not see my face any more. We told you, my Lord, Judas says, that he cannot leave his father, for his father will die. But you pressed us. You said you must bring him down, or you will not see my face. And we told our father what you commanded us. So when we came back to Egypt and we told our father these things and we ran out of food, our father said, go up again, buy us a little food. And we answered him, we cannot, we cannot unless our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down for we may not see the man's face except our youngest brother be with us. And then Judah turns the discussion to the condition of his own father. Beginning in verse 27. And you can imagine Joseph leaning forward in his chair as he hears this because now he learns for the first time 
what had happened in the house of Jacob after he, Joseph, had been carried away in chains. Judah speaks, My father said to us, You know that my wife bare me two sons. And the one went out for me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. And if you take this other son from me, and mischief befalls him, you will bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now there's more in Judah's way of telling this story than may meet the eye, and Joseph would have caught it. Listen to what, Joseph, what Jacob says as Judah reports it. Verse 27. You know that my wife bare me two sons. How painful it had been to Judah. How painful that his mother, Leah, had not been recognized as the wife of Jacob. How painful that he, a son of Leah, with his other brothers, had not been recognized as the children of Jacob. It was out of the root of that pain that bitterness and envy had sprung up in Judah's heart and in the heart of his brothers so that they hated their brother Joseph, and sold him into slavery. My wife bare me two sons. That's how Judah reports Jacob's words. That's what Jacob said. What a dagger in, Ju- in Judah's soul. Even here, later, after he's repented and after he's turned, my wife bare me two sons. You know that, Judah, right? My wife, two sons. That had caused all kinds of turmoil in Judah's heart that brought about the evil deed. But no longer. Judah had reconciled himself to the reality of his father's weakness. And he loved him anyway. That's what his speech here reveals. He loved him anyway. Loved him as his father. And so he goes on, verse 30. Now therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, it shall come to pass when he seeth that the lad is not with us, that he will die, and thy servants shall bring down the gray hairs of my servant, of thy servant our father, with sorrow to the grave. O my Lord, if I come back to my father without this lad, since my father's life is bound up with his life, when he sees us without Benjamin, he will die. And he will die with an accusation in his eyes, an accusation against me. For I became surety for my father unto the lad, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, I shall bear the blame before my father forever. That's what Judah says. And remember, Joseph is hearing this all for the first time. And whereas before Joseph knew only the bitterness and envy of Judah and his other brothers, an envy, a bitterness, a hatred that had brought him into chains in Egypt. Now he hears only unconditional love coming out of Judah's mouth. And he hears of Judah's promise to protect Benjamin, his his younger brother. And there is no envy in Judah's heart with respect to the lad, the child. There is no jealousy in the fact that Benjamin is treated as his father's favorite. There is only love. There is only compassion. Love and compassion for his father. This old man who has weaknesses and infirmities, but he loves him. 
and for his brother, this, this young lad who was vulnerable and easily could be thrown away into chains. Judah loves him. And at the cost of Judah's own pride and his own craving to be loved and recognized by his father, he says the words of verse 33. Now therefore I pray thee and read, I beg you, I beg you, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go up to my father, and the lad be not with me, lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father? Let me stay and be your slave, just me, just me alone. Let the rest of them go home. Let him go. Let Benjamin go. Let him go. I beg you, please, let me stay. Let me be the slave. Let me never see my father again. Let me never see my home again. Let Benjamin go home. Jesus says there's no greater love than that a man should lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Judah does here. Lays down his life for Benjamin. Offers himself to be the slave in Egypt. All before the watching eyes of Joseph. His brother, whom before he had sold for 20 pieces of silver. And that right there, beloved, is reflective of the mind and heart of Jesus Christ. According to 1 John 3, verse 16, this is how we know love. Because he, that is God in Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. He allowed himself to be bound, allowed himself to be spit upon, allowed himself to be hit and abused. He did not summon an army of angels to set him free, but he took the nails that were pierced into his wrist. He stayed there on the cross. He drank the cup of his father's wrath. He drank it down to the dregs as the price of our redemption. He laid down his life, and he laid down his life not for those who loved him. He laid down his life not for those who recognized him as what he was, the Lord of heaven and earth. He laid down his life not for those who received him with open arms, not for those who believed in him unflinchingly and at all times. No, he laid down his life for sinners. He laid down his life for those whom he always had to describe as those who are of little faith. He laid down his life for those who sunk in the waves, even though he was standing right there in front of Peter. He laid down his life for those who treated him as an enemy, who took him for granted, who forsook him and fled from him in the hour of his need. For them, with pure, unconditional, free and gracious love, he laid down his life for you who believe in him, who have his spirit working in your lives. He laid down his life for you, though you do not deserve it. That's the mind of Christ. A mind and a heart that began to be Judah's own mind and heart. And it shows. Judah dies here. Dies here to himself and begins to live unto God for the cause of his kingdom. Maybe Judah would not have put it in these words. But deep in his heart of faith, he was counting here all things lost, but for the excellency of the knowledge of God in Christ. Everything else is dung to me. My whole life is dung to me. If I can have but Christ and His righteousness, 
he picks up his cross and he follows his Lord. And that, beloved, is reflective of a truly repentant and Christian life. Do you repent of your sins? Have you, like Judah, tasted the grace of redemption and found it sweet? Do you long to live a new life? A new life by the grace of God? Then this is what that will look like. You will lay down your life. You will know nothing as important, nothing as dear, save Jesus Christ and his cross. And you will seek the peace of Jerusalem and the eternal good of your brothers and sisters in the kingdom. And you will sacrifice your own wants and your own dreams and your own ambitions for your brother and your sister. That, beloved, is the Christian life. That's the life of the converted. That's the life that we now live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, as Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20. And that's the life that Judah lived here as recorded in this story. I imagine it was quiet for a moment as Joseph tried to compose himself, but soon he burst out, cause every man to go out from me. And he meant his servants, his steward, and any other Egyptian who was still standing in the room, get out, get out, leave me alone with these men. And then Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Can you imagine this scene, beloved? Can you imagine it? The confusion, the fear, the wonder in the eyes of Judah and his brothers as this man's voice changed. As he began to weep and be overcome with emotion. And as these words came out of his mouth, I am Joseph. Does my father yet live? We read in chapter 45 that they were troubled. That is, they were panic-stricken and alarmed immediately. This man is Joseph. This man who has been so stern to us, so mysterious, who seems to have set us up in this situation. This man who is the second most powerful man in the world. This man is Joseph. The man whom we sold into, into Egypt as a slave. The man who we had had plans to kill? This man is Joseph? Their first reaction was fear, terror. Now they're in his power. Now he will take his revenge. But no, nothing could be further from the heart of Joseph. Come near, I pray you, he says. Come near. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But do not be grieved. Do not be angry with yourselves that you did this, for the hand of God was in this. He sent me before you, and he sent me before you to preserve life. And then it all came out. And they learned of what happened to Joseph after he was carried out of their sight in chains. And they learned of the danger that Jacob and their tribe was in on account of this famine that was going to continue for another five years. And they began to make plans to bring Jacob and the whole tribe into Egypt for the deliverance of the household of Jacob. And they embraced, and they wept, and they talked. And I'm sure they talked for a very long time. It's one of the most powerful and beautiful episodes in the Bible, in my opinion. That's why you have to read that section in its entirety. To feel the force of that moment. 
A family that had been shattered to pieces because of envy and sin and hatred now is made whole again, now is reconciled and reconciled to the saving of this family. And obviously it was the hand of God that was directing all of these things. And his way of saving the family of Jacob had to do with more than just the role that Judah played. And yet you see how important that that role of Judah was. How important it was that Judah laid down his life for his brother. That was the action that melted the heart of Joseph in the end and opened the way for reconciliation. When Judah laid down his life for his brother, that was the key that unlocked this way for Jacob and his family to escape the famine and to live in the land of Goshen. That was the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ moving through the faith and life of Judah to bring salvation to his people. That's what was going on there. Don't underestimate the power of it, beloved. This is Christ in you. When you lay down your life for your brothers and your sisters, when you die and are buried in Him so that you can be raised up to new life for the glory of God, raised up to a life that is not so self-centered, raised up to a life that is not so of the flesh, raised up to a life that is not so wrapped up with the concerns of this world, a life that is patterned after the life of Christ. That's the witness of the Christian life, beloved, and there's power in that witness. The power of God is in that witness. When your little boy or your little girl sees you, Christian father, laying down your life for your mother, when your neighbor sees you, believer, sacrificing yourself in love for your neighbor, the Lord will use that. He'll use that to work salvation for His people. Oh yes, maybe he'll use that to harden the wicked in their unbelief. That happens too. So that they are left without excuse. But the Lord may use it another way too. When you, Christian believer, lay down your life for the Lord God and for your brother, maybe he'll use it this way. To bring reconciliation where there was alienation. To bring healing where there were open wounds. To bring hope and joy again where there was grief and sadness. We don't know what the Lord will do. What we do know is that there is power. Power in the life of a Christian who like Judah, by the grace of God, lays down his life for his brother. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for this story, for how true to life it is, and how it speaks to circumstances that we ourselves may find ourselves in. This is a reality of life, that we sin against Thee, and we sin against one another, and disruption and alienation And problems occur because of that. So we pray, O Father, for the grace to lay down our lives for our brothers and for our sisters, to count all things, the pleasures of life, the the life of this world as loss, but for the excellency of the knowledge of God in Christ, that we may die to ourselves so that Christ may live in us. We pray, O Father, use us when we live that way. 
Use our witness as a church and as individuals, as families. Use our witness to save much people alive. To gather our children in the line of continued generations and to gather perhaps others out of the darkness of this world and into the light of the Son of God and to bring salvation to thy people. Well, Father, it's a hard thing, a hard thing for us, so against our instincts, so against our flesh. We want to preserve our life, but we know what the Lord says, that those who will save their lives shall lose it. So we pray for the grace to lay down our lives so that thereby we may gain all things in Christ. Forgive our sins and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake.